Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. A new pod on the network that I want to highlight is from the Alberta Advantage. Kimberly Williams, author of Stampede, Misogyny, White Supremacy, and Settler Colonialism, joins Team Advantage to discuss the greatest outdoor show on earth. Harbinger is a fantastic project, and you should go become a supporter and get exclusive supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwachewa Skygun, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 Territory, on the banks of the Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today to talk about how pepper spray is the solution to decades of state-sponsored systemic racism, we are joined by Heike Chima and Dr. Mana Saleh. Uh, Heike is a Progress Report contributor, very proud to say, as well as a community organizer who works closely with Muslim-led organizations. And Dr. Mana Saleh is an assistant professor at Concordia University of Edmonton in the Faculty of Education and the author of Stories We Live and Grow By, Retelling Our Experiences as Muslim Mothers and Daughters. Heike and Mana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, uh, yeah, I mean... (sighs) The reason we're here today, I kind of teased it in the intro there, um, but it, and I'm trying to make light of it, but it is quite serious. We are seeing, you know, an incredibly disturbing epidemic of violence against visibly Muslim women or hijabis here in Alberta, and especially here in Edmonton. You know, since uh, December, there have been at least a dozen reported attacks against visibly Muslim women. And, uh, you know, most of them black, most of them wearing a hijab. And I think it's worth going into a little bit of a bit of detail about what Muslim women are facing, you know, in this epidemic. But, you know, just a content warning that I I am going to describe some of these attacks uh, before we kind of get into the discussion. But uh, in December here in Edmonton, a man approached two black women wearing hijabs who were sitting in their cars um, he approached them, started yelling racist obscenities. He punched the passenger window, breaking it. When a woman ran from the car, he ran after her, pushed her to the ground and assaulted her. Just recently here on June 29th in St. Albert, a knife welding man uttered racial slurs and attacked two Muslim women out for a walk. Uh, this man grabbed one of the women by her hijab and pushed her to the ground where she was knocked unconscious. You know, this also comes on the heels of you know, the incredibly tragic, hate-motivated killing of a Muslim family in London, Ontario. I'm not going to get into every single incident, but are there any details or incidents that either of you wanted to highlight or talk about? So, yeah, um, thank you again, Duncan, for inviting me. Um, And both of us, actually. I'm I'm honored to be here with Heike. But I just wanted to begin by acknowledging <clears throat> that I'm on Treaty 6 territory um, and acknowledge how I am complicit and implicated in the ongoing um, settler colonialism of, uh, and injustices against peoples and communities, Indigenous peoples and communities specifically on these lands. And so I think it's really important to situate myself uh, always in, in this work as I continue to uh, advocate for a more just world. So one of the things that I've really noticed 
um, I think many of us have really noticed is the lack of leadership um, at all levels of government in these attacks. Um, I'm talking about municipal, provincial and federal and here in Alberta. What I wanted to really bring forward was that most of these attacks are, were, are against Black Muslim women in specific and hijab. And I think that it's really important to highlight that. And as Haika and I, we're not Black Muslim women. Uh, I'm Palestinian. I do wear hijab. However, the intersectionality of anti-Black racism, misogyny, sexism, racism, and Islamophobia, which is a form of racism, and I'll delve into that. Uh, Many people refer to it as anti-Muslim hate as well, and we'll talk about uh, the different terms. But what I really wanted to to highlight is that this is... um, this has been a, an example of systemic failure uh, at all levels of government. And um, I can delve into that later, but I'm gonna give uh, Haika a chance to speak as well. I think my, yeah, I think for me, it's just basically about how how terrifying these attacks have been and how violent they've gotten over years. Um, I think what I'm, for the first time in my life, I'm seeing like there's no fear to be able to go up to a Muslim woman and um, hit her to the ground. And then have people that are standing around do nothing. That is just so terrifying. And for me, I don't know if there's an end in sight until there's a fundamental shift in our society. Yeah, I mean, I bring it up talking about, you know, a regional issue here in Edmonton and Calgary and Alberta, but I mean, this is nationwide, right? Like according to the mm-hmm. NCCM, you know, more Muslims have been killed in targeted hate attacks in Canada than in any other G7 nation over the past five years. And you're in, you're absolutely right. Like, this is a systemic issue. And it's one um, that I think people struggle with to be like, how, how do we solve something that has, you know, literally baked into how Canada works, right? Like, how did mm-hmm. anti-Muslim hate become so ingrained into the Canadian political project that we are seeing these kinds of attacks so regularly? I think we can't talk about anti-Muslim hate or Islamophobia in Canada without acknowledging that Canada is built on white supremacy. And we can't talk about um, anti-Muslim hate without talking about the war on terror and the years of ongoing imperialism that Canada has been part of in countries like Afghanistan or Syria um, or Iraq. So over the years, you know, uh, especially after 9-11, we saw Canada become part of all these projects abroad, which really led to dehumanization of Muslims. Um, So this is not something that is isolated that we're seeing all of a sudden in 2021. This has been going on for decades. And Muslims all around the world know this. Um, And we have been heavily surveilled over and over again. So I'm just going to just mention some examples. Like I remember, um, I know people who have been heavily surveilled because they were part of the Muslim Student Associations on different universities. They've had CSIS or the RCMP knock on their doors and ask um, very threatening questions or ask them to step outside to just have a walk and then try to get more information about the community through them, which has been so traumatic for so many young people in our community who have really distanced themselves from from the greater community work because of the the heavy surveillance that resulted from being part of 
organizations like the Muslim Students Association. Um, which I I remember I got super involved in politics is because of Bill C-51. Like we literally tried to pass a legislation that would that would class Canadian Muslims as second class citizens. We had the, the the thing I'm remembering is the barbaric practices line where Muslims were genuinely labeled as barbaric and that was um, that was normalized. So Duncan, these things are not happening in in silos. These things are not happening out of nowhere or just like this hate on internet. This has been part of Canada. And I think we need to acknowledge that. And I'll pass it on to Mona to add on more. Yeah, thank you. So um, exactly that, everything that Heike said, um, I am 100% in agreement with. And so I really wanted to, to also highlight um, something that I think many people don't um, know or understand or don't recognize, but this has been an issue long before 9-11. And that's another part of uh, the ongoing state-sanctioned racism, Islamophobia, that um, really Canada has, you know, contributed to and actually perpetuated. And so I, I know that in 1978, I think many of the listeners will understand, will will know that Edward Said in 1978 published his uh, landmark book, Orientalism, and it really detailed how Western governments have uh, manufactured hate against Muslims or anybody perceived to be Muslim. And in the after uh, 9-11, of course, this intensified. And then, of course, as Heike mentioned, we had the so-called, and I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but it's not because it's not funny. But I think for me, it's um, it's just ridiculous. I still can't believe that it happened. So it was the 2015 federal zero toler quote unquote zero tolerance for barbaric cultural practices act, where you had uh, focused targeting. And although you know Muslim, the word Muslim is not in the act, and it was never really explicitly said that Muslims were being targeted, but it was 100% understood. This was a major dog whistle whistle for racists and Islamophobes. And it was being perpetuated by our federal government. And so that alone, I remember I was researching alongside Canadian Muslim um, mothers and daughters at the time. So that was my, the book, Uh, it's actually a revised version of my dissertation. And I was in the process of engaging in conversation alongside many different youth and it was all of them had something to say about this and about how they were disgusted and they were afraid of where this was headed and how, you know, this shapes lives at a way that people don't really understand. And so one of the things that have happened since 9-11 has been these constant like task force, listening sessions, all of these things. And I recently tweeted about this. I am sick of these listening sessions at all levels of government. I refuse to take part in them anymore. How much more evidence do you need that this isn't a problem? I mean, after the Quebec uh, mosque shootings, and especially now with, with the, the, the killings of the Afzal and Salman families in London. You don't need, you know, not to mention the exponential rise in hate crimes that are, and these are just the third that are reported, by the way. And I'm going to be citing um, 
something right now, a document that I, um, I, I actually gave you the link. I don't know if you, in your introduction, Duncan, or anything like that to this podcast, if you can share this link. But it was some, it's a special uh, report submitted to the UN uh, Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, and it was submitted in November thir- on November 30, 2020. And it was submitted by the International Cyber- Civil Liberties Monitoring Group, Islamic Social Services Association, and New York Cultural Center, and it's based on research by Aziza Kanji. And what it was is this um, very um, detailed, yet succinct um, exploration of Islamophobia in Canada. And so I'm just going to give you a few of the details here of what she talked about. And sorry, they talked about, but it was based on research by um, uh, Kanji. That Islamophobia is defined here as an unfounded or disproportionate fear and or hatred of Islam or Muslims or those perceived to be Muslim, leading to violence and systemic discrimination. Here's there, there is an acknowledgement that Islamophobia is gendered. And so it operates according to, um, quote, unquote, gendered stereotypes about Muslim men as violent terrorists and patriarchs and Muslim women as subjugated victims and dangerous cultural vectors, end quote. And also details how Islamophobia intersects with other systems of racism, including, of course, as we see here in Edmonton, anti-Black racism, Indigenous racism, uh, Black Indigenous Muslims experience the compounding effects of these different systems. And so... Really what I wanted to highlight though here is even as we talk about Canada and so often this multicultural liberal view of Canada as an accepting slash tolerant nation, I want to highlight the public perception of Islam and Muslims that this report um, documents. So according to recent survey findings, and the, and you could, more about the survey can be found on this document, 46% of Canadians have an unfavorable view of Islam more than any other religious tradition. Fewer than half of Canadians would find it, quote unquote, acceptable for one of their children to marry a Muslim, lower than that of any other religious group. 56% of Canadians believe that Islam suppresses women's rights. More than half of people living in Toronto feel mainstream Muslim doctrines promote violence. 52% of Canadians feel that Muslims can only be trusted, quote unquote, a little or not at all. 42% of Canadians think discrimination against Muslim is, quote unquote, mainly their fault. 47% of Canadians support banning headscarves in public, compared with 30% of Americans. 51% support government surveillance of mosques, compared to 46% of Americans. And 55% of Canadians think the problem of Islamophobia is quote-unquote overblown by politicians and media, and only 29% supported a non-binding parliamentary motion, which was M103, to condemn and study Islamophobia. And so as much as we like to believe that we are a quote, 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 tolerant, liberal, multicultural nation, there is Islamophobia rooted and embedded and has been manufactured uh, in part by the Canadian government. Well, I mean, those stats are certainly very stark and certainly play into a narrative that we kind of hit on very commonly on the Progress Report, which is that the Canadian state is actually far more evil and worse than you think. Um, I mean, there's so much to dive in there. There, I mean, M103 was was really like when I think we saw conservative politicians flip the switch, right? It become just straight up progenitors and purveyors of anti-Muslim hate. 
Um, and we've even seen apologies from folks who were quasi apologizing for you know the role they played around M103 as well as um, you know some of the the legislation you brought earlier, the barbaric cultural practices tip line. You know we've seen you know MP Tim Upple, MP Michelle Rempel Garner, Michelle Rempel Garner, uh, Ken Bossenkool, high level kind of conservative strategist, kind of quasi apologize. But when it came to Jason Kenney uh, and you know apologizing for all of the stuff he did, specifically around the kneecap ban, uh, he very pointedly refused to even acknowledge that he ever supported a kneecap ban. I mean, this headline, this CBC headline is is hilarious, right? Alberta Premier denies supporting kneecap ban despite past public statements. Um, you know, and I don't want to just paint this as a Conservative Party of Canada thing. The, the criminalization and the state-sponsored systemic racism against Muslims was perpetrated under liberal governments as well. But um, but it is, this is Canada, right? So, Mana, you also bring up something that's really important as well, which is like the gendered nature of this violence we see against Muslims and specifically like how men and women are gendered as you know, either subjugated by Muslim men or as these violent brutes. And this, um, we've seen kind of like the weaponization of white, white feminism by, you know, Canada and the United States against Muslims, right? It's like how they justified their invasion of Afghanistan, right? And, and, and I think that that's an idea that's worth exploring further, uh, and I don't know how you want to dive into it. I mean, we could maybe start with what's happening in France and how what happened in France then percolated down to Quebec with Bill 21. Yeah, I, I really I thank you for bringing that forward, Duncan, because um, I think it's important to really when we talk about white feminism um, and how we see it, because a lot of people will call us racist for using the word white. Um, but there it is a very... Um, quote unquote colorblind approach to feminism. And so I really highly recommend for anybody who's who's really struggling with understanding what white feminism entails to read Sada Ahmed's work. She really delves into this idea of feminism and what does that look like when it's intersectional. And so I'll I'll continue when I when you talk about the use of white feminism in in um in invading Afghanistan. Actually I wrote about this in my dissertation and how Laura Bush, then um first lady, I guess, uh Laura Bush talked about uh, and brought forward this idea of we need to save these oppressed Muslim women by conversely basically bombing them. And so the <laughs> yes, and I'm sorry, again, I laugh because it's ridiculous because, oh, this fight is also a fight for Muslim women and for Afghan women in Afghanistan. And as if war and raining bombs upon a people have ever <laughs> provided the solution to anything. And so it's just this weaponization of the, the Orientalist trope of the need to save us, um, which has been exponentially promoted by governments. And as Heike mentioned, imperialism, of course, and the media. Media is, is extremely complicit in this as well. 
And so when we t- I talk about media, it's t- typically whenever you have any kind of article, it's gotten a little bit better, but it's still very much there uh, of, you know, oh, Muslim women or Muslims. And you have this typically this image of this poor, forsaken Muslim woman in a burqa, niqab or hijab who looks just desolate as if we don't also have you know, awful moments in our lives. And it's just captured and it's just perpetuated as this incredibly reductive stereotype of us. And so this has also been perpetuated at different levels. And this weaponization through now, these the state-sanctioned racism of the inability to acknowledge that there are multiple scores, majority of Muslim women who wear hijab have chosen to wear hijab. And so basically, we're going to save you by not allowing you any choice about what to what how to, you know, dress yourself, what clothes to wear, basically what to do with your own body. And this white um, liberal, quote unquote, neoliberal, actually feminism is incredibly damaging. And we now are seeing the effects of this in Quebec. And so as an educator, as I read stories, for example, of other Muslim educators who at this point, basically because of the law, they won't lose their job, but they can't get promoted. So basically, if they complain about racism or Islamophobia, they are can easily get fired because it's state-sanctioned. And so they won't be able to get promoted and they don't really have legal recourses. Sorry, recourses. Of course, you have legal recourses, but we know how this will work out. Basically, they won't be able to fulfill their path in their careers as they might see fit for themselves. So how is this freedom? And so I'll stop there. Yeah, the 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 Bill Twenty One stuff really doesn't get enough play, and it's mostly because just English Canada is, doesn't really pay attention to Quebec. But it is um, shockingly uh, authoritarian what's happening there right now. And Heike, I know, and this is these are terms we've kind of used interchangeably over the course of, you know, how far the 20 minutes or 25 minutes we've done so far. But like, I know you've done a bit of thinking about this too, about the ter- like Islamophobia versus the term Muslim hate, anti-Muslim hate. Like, what do you think we should call it? And what is, what is the, like, what's your preferred kind of nomenclature? My preferred one has to be anti-Muslim hate because it centers people. Um, when I think about Islamophobia, the very term is about fear of Islam. But I think the attacks that happen towards us doesn't come from a fear, um, the fear of Islam or fear of just not understanding what Islam means. And you're just a little bit uneducated. It is pure meditated, premeditated hate. And I think we need to move beyond um, this idea that like people don't, people don't understand um, you and your way of life and that's why they fear you because that kind of fear leads to very violent hate towards us and also I feel like the word Islamophobia leads us to these like very academic talks about Muslim experience and I've been there I've been in universities sat on those round tables where whenever I would call something Islamophobic the conversation would turn from your feelings versus my freedom of speech. Um, and then it would go down that uh, that rabbit hole rather than talking about the impact so-and-so policy is having on real life people. 
So whenever I talk about, you know, other forms of racism, like anti-Asian hate or anti-Semitism, anything like that, it centers it centers the people that are experiencing it. With, whereas I find with Islamophobia, A, it becomes an academic discussion on people's experiences. And second, it puts the burden on the Muslim community to do more. You need to you know, go out and have more interfaith dialogues. You need to do X, Y, and Z so people don't fear your existence. So that's why I think we have a, a chance right now to kind of shift the language about about the hate that we as Muslims in Canada experience. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. Like people aren't attacking Muslim women because they're scared of them. They're doing it because they hate Muslim women. And like you know, I'm I'm I was born in 1983. I'm 38 years old. I watched a movie called Arachnophobia when I was a kid about you know sp- scary mm-hmm. spiders. <laughs> like it, it is, it's yeah. a very like psychological psych class yeah. like term. Like anti-Muslim hate is far more correct. Yeah. Um, but I think there's also a divide in the community because, uh, and I obviously I don't speak for the full Muslim community, there's, there's a growing sentiment that we need to reclaim this term because a lot of the hate that comes towards us does come from, a, from hatred of Islam. Um, so where do we reconcile the two? Uh, but I think those are discussions that we, we as a community um, need to have and shift um, the public, the public dialogue on on the Muslim experience in in North America. Yeah, can I also add something here too, please? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I I agree a hundred percent with Haika. I mean, even when I was in the process of beginning my research, I remember telling my supervisor, I don't like the term Islamophobia because it's so pathologizing, and it is not accurate in my opinion about the, our experiences. And yet, I, I just like Haika, I feel this tension because it's also what has been, there's scores of gone scores of work that use the term, uses the term Islamophobia, and scores upon scores of different bodies of literature that if we, if we don't use the term, that might get lost in the process, even from mm-hmm. something as basic as an academic search. And so I've, I've been trying to use both terms like alongside each other in my work. And so, and to make it clear that it's really, okay, yes, the term is important, of course, how we name thing matters, but we have to move beyond really navel gazing about the term at this point and really get towards, um, what do we need to do about it? You know? Mm -hmm. And so that's where I feel a lot of tension because I agree 100% with Haika about it. Yeah, what we do about it is is something we need to get to, and and what the Alberta government has done about it is what spurred this podcast in the first place, and me reaching out to both of you and setting this up because, you know, as we I stated off the top, all of the, this epidemic of violence against Muslim women, you know, the government of Alberta has noticed it, uh, but they haven't really done very much. So I'll give a very kind of brief precis of of their response. So um, after a Catholic church burnt down in Morinville, uh, Jason Kenney, the premier of our province, threw even more money at a program that had been targeted at mosques and synagogues that gave them money to put in things like cameras and fencing and security systems. Uh, In December, three cabinet ministers put out a statement on the hate-motivated assaults of hijabis that were happening here in Edmonton. Uh, Madhu has announced, uh, sorry, Justice Minister Casey Madhu uh, announced a plan to create a dedicated hate crime unit 
which was essentially just building on something that was announced by the NDP, but was never actually put into, uh, was never actually built. It never actually happened. Uh, Madhu also announced a new community liaison position that will connect directly with ethnic and religious groups uh, that are affected by hate crimes. And finally, Casey Madhu really did this. He really wrote a letter to the federal government calling on them to amend the criminal code to allow for pepper spray as a means of self-defense, saying that the provincial government had, quote, done everything within provincial jurisdiction to deal with this issue. This issue being, of course, the epidemic of violence against Muslim women. What do you all, I don't know, why don't I start with Heike? Heike, what do you think about the Alberta government's response uh, to this epidemic of violence against Muslim women? Have they done everything within provincial jurisdiction to deal with the issue? Oh, God, absolutely not. And I'm laughing because this is just ridiculous, Duncan. Like, pepper spray? Like, are we really going to encourage violence now? And I don't even know where they got that idea from, as if they don't have lists and lists of recommendations and all the uh, people that come forward with these are these are the very tangible things that you can do. But instead, they went for something like a pepper spray that would require very little work on the provincial government's part um, and just pass the buck off to the feds and be like, look, we did something. And I genuinely believe that they 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 made that announcement on July 27th, 22nd, the same day as the Islamophobia Summit was happening to try to steal the thunder from the federal liberals. So like we see these politicians playing games with our lives, trying to score political points for something as stupid as a pepper spray. And I I don't want to take this lightly because I was horrified too when I saw that that was an idea that they were presenting because A, it shows they're not listening to our communities. They recognize that something is happening, but that is the solution they're coming up with. And then second, my worry is that this, this sort of pepper spray, if it is legalized and hopefully it's not, could very much be used in turn um, as a violent tool against Muslim women, against Black men and Indigenous men. When, you know, a white woman could be in our downtown and even with the slight um, slight fear of her security, she could easily pepper spray a Black or Indigenous man. And that is very scary. And it shows that they haven't really thought this through. Like there was, I haven't heard from a single person that is on board with this idea for pepper spray for all. It's just ridiculous. Mana, what are your thoughts on the the Alberta government's reaction and the the pepper spray for all idea from our justice minister? I agree with Heike again. It is absolutely ridiculous. Nobody asked for that. Um, all of these listening sessions seems to underscore that nobody's listening. Um, because I'm going to highlight not only that uh, you highlighted the NCCM uh, report, but I'm going to highlight something that that is a group that is very much uh, women-led and women-centered, Muslim women-led and Muslim women-centered, um, the, the Sisters Dialogue uh, group. And they put out, and I sent you a screenshot of the recommendations that they put out for uh, centering women's voices and anti-Muslim hate. Because as of course, you know, of course all Muslims should be um, should be centered. It's because these attacks 
have been specifically against Muslim women and specifically black Muslim women, this should be, um, they should be, you know, really centered in these discussions. And so when he comes out with this recommendation about pepper spray, honestly, again, I've been part of dozens of these, these listening sessions and that has never come out. Um, so I honestly have no clue where he got that from. I think that it is absolutely short-sighted in terms of, and well, and characteristically, in all honesty, if I'm going to be completely honest, and Haika really brought that forward as well. I mean, my sister, and I'm going to shout her out, Fatima Saleh, um, <laughs> and she's going to, because I need to shout her out, of course. Um, she tweeted that, you know, what, what happens if people are assuming you're armed, uh, even as they're trying to attack you, you know, not, on, not to mention what, if they're, you know, better armed. And so it's just incredibly, um, honestly, it doesn't make any sense. And so that's my thoughts. Sounds like both of you have been a part of a lot of uh, waste of time listening exercises. <laughs> way too many, way too many. Honestly, and, I, yes. Yeah. Similar to Mona, I absolutely refuse to do them. Uh, because I'm like, these are some tangible things that you can do and you refuse to just waste uh, our time and use listening sessions as a delay tactic to take any tangible action. So I, I refuse to engage in them. Well, and, and many of us have been doing these set kinds of things for several years now. It's not just mm-hmm. these last few months, which have been really intense, because here's another thing that, that many people probably don't realize as well is that you have people from um, municipal governments, you have people from different uh, parties and provincial governments, and you have diff- people from different parties and federal governments. And so you're you're just completely inundated with these constant requests to re-traumatize yourself because it is a form. We, I, I'm, you know, people don't realize we have individual and collective trauma from these mm-hmm. ongoing, this ongoing hate and violence against us. And so, you know, at first, when I first started getting asked, I was more than willing, because I thought maybe, you know, maybe if we teach, maybe if people learn, maybe people understand. And honestly, several years later, I am so sick of it and cynical, because really what it's become very clear to me is that it's a performative way of saying, we are here. We are listening, but listening to me implies doing something with what you're listening to. That's actively listening to people. And so I've refused to do them. I'm done. Yeah, uh, very fair. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, it's just classic where a government is wants to appear to be doing something, but you know, they have a $60 billion budget, you know, the government of Alberta, they have the ability to write laws and it's like, eh, we'll listen to you and then not listen to you. And then just ask for pepper spray. <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> and Duncan, I do want to recognize here the special burden that we've put on black women. I know when you brought up the idea of this podcast and you and I tried to find somebody for almost two months to be able to do this podcast with us, and we weren't able to, and it's because people like Hanan Mahmoud or Asma Ali or Tamira Mohammed are leading the work on the ground and have been burnt by these institutions. They've given so much of their time um, and have not been listened to both on the left and the center right. And the, um, so I think, I think it's 
the the burden that we've placed on black women is so huge and constantly expecting them to come and teach us and then completely dismissing them when it, when it actually comes to taking some real action. Yes, and I want to also add and, and really highlight the work of Dunya Noor, who has been doing so much alongside all of these other amazing women that Haika mentioned, because um, if, it's, if, if I feel so burnt out, you know, if, if Haika feels so burnt out, if, you know, I cannot imagine you know, the, the layers of exhaustion when you're also dealing with anti-Black hate um, and the refusal to acknowledge it um, within and across different communities, in uh, Muslim communities and, and uh, non-Muslim communities. And so um, I'm 100% in agreement. Yeah, Dunya does amazing work. And we, we tried to get her, but again, it didn't work out. But I think this leads us into, you know, you know, the classic what is to be done section of the, the progress report podcast. And this one I think is, you know, one of the the trickier ones just because of how baked and ingrained into society, anti-Muslim hate and Islamophobia is. And so I'll, I'll throw it out uh, to whoever wants to go first. Like what are your top three kind of things you would recommend to kind of address the systemic issues behind this epidemic of violence against hijabis? Um, I can go first. And I think first thing I really want to reiterate is that we cannot legislate our way out of hate. We cannot just, you know, have a dedicated hate crimes unit and just pray that hate crimes will go away. We've tried that. Uh, we can't just, you know, beef up prosecutions and be like, prosecute these people and make sure they're in jail um, because that's, that's just not going to work. And Duncan, you and I were chatting about this before. I have been, you know, tracking the cases as they go, as they go through our legal system. And one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of the perpetrators of anti-Muslim hate are part of our unhoused population who are having a mental health crisis with the opioid crisis that is going on. Um, they are, uh, many of them are indigenous. And I think for me, um, I would not want a state to use my safety as an excuse to further prosecute the marginalized people of our society. That is just completely unacceptable to me. So when we're talking about, you know, safety of Muslim women, I am viewing it as how are we using practices of restorative justice um, as we move forward uh, on um, on these illegal cases. And I would really encourage governments at all levels to take that approach, to invest in affordable housing, to change our curriculum. And I know Dr. Saleh can talk more about this. She's the expert. But you know, to have, um, to address Islamophobia and anti-Muslim hate within our curriculum that Alberta government has completely tarnished. Um, and to focus a lot on mental health support. There's an opioid crisis right now in, in Alberta. And the fact that the government refuses to even acknowledge that is very concerning. And it's putting all of our safety at risk. Mm-hmm. Mana? Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, 100, again, I agree uh, 100% with Haika and what she said. And I'm going to just really stress and highlight here that it's important to remember that this cannot be done in isolation. Our work is rooted in intersectionality or else it doesn't 
it doesn't succeed. Because here I'm, I'm, I'm referring to the theory of intersectionality that legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw conceptualized over 30 years ago. So at that time, Dr. Crenshaw discussed how black women in America face oppressive systems of sexism and anti-black racism and how they converge in unique ways. But more recently, she and others have discussed how violent systems of settler colonialism, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, anti-Asian racism, anti-Palestinian racism, ableism, colorism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, poverty, classism, Islamophobia, and, uh, and anti-Semitism, among many other systems. So I really want to read what I'm going to say next in these. And when we're talking about anti-oppressive education or anti-racist education, we have to continuously remember um, that that's what we're talking about, how it's so intersect, it intersects, all these systems intersect, intersect and there are, systems are rooted in these systems. And so another thing that I really wanted to highlight is that we can't, Heike and I, as much as we try to bring forward the different considerations, we can't and, you know, there's just no way we can speak on behalf of all Muslim women. Um, and so I'm going to be highlighting some of the things that um, Sister Zyluk has recommended. And so, so I'm just going to read a few out. So one of them is that province-wide public service announcements against Islamophobia that are proactive, an internal anti-Islamophobia policy for all provincial agencies and institutions, a zero tolerance approach for hate groups and commitment from the Ministry of Justice, Justice to hold law enforcement to their disbanding. Um, and there should be a designated hate crime resource council group uh, that can advise crown prosecutors. And we want an education curriculum that centers around equity, justice, and Indigenous, Black, and Muslim history. And I say that as I think about how I had a recent discussion with my dean, Dr. Edgar Schmidt, about these constant calls for anti-racist education. And of course, it is important, but we cannot educate our way out of these things as well. Because the problem with trying to focus solely on education is that to forget all of these other systems that we are all embedded in and that shape different our lives in different ways. And so, yes, education, of course, I'm 100%. And of course, I agree with Heike that the, the proposed curriculum is absolute. I'm just going to use this garbage, especially social studies um, proposed curriculum. And I can get into that because social studies is my area. But what we need more than anything is to stop playing politics with people's lives. And I know this is hard for people in politics to maybe understand um, in different ways. And I'm talking specifically about our politicians and leaders, so-called leaders here in Alberta. But we need people to stop playing politics with our lives because this is serious. People are literally facing violence on an everyday basis uh, in different forms. Uh, and some, as has been highlighted, have lost their lives because of it. I'm sorry, I should not say lost their lives. I'm going to bring that for, take that back. Their lives have been taken because of it. Mm. Yeah, this is, again, you're talking about transforming society, right? Into one that doesn't demonize others and is welcoming and loving and takes care of people as opposed to the system we have now, which is like fundamentally inhuman and violent to so many people. Um, yeah, yeah. Can I actually just also add to that? And that is something that a lot of people, when they hear me talk, they, they just hear or they see my tweets, for example, and for many of us, it's the same way. They just think that we are 
you know, angry, and I am angry. Anger is a valid response and emotion to injustice. But really what we're calling for is a, a society that's rooted in, in what Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks conceptualize as radical love, that we can and should change systems. And what uh, Dr. Dwayne Donald has conceptualized as, as relational, uh, ethical relationality, um, there are different ways of being in this world and, and, and living and, and, you know, building and rooting our world. But are we brave enough to take it and to try to do things in, in, in more humane and just ways? Exactly. Like, like as Heike said, we're not going to be able to cop and prison and hate crime unit and security at mosques our way out of this problem. Right. And, um, and it is foundational. And one thing that I think is, the point that I want to raise is that like pushing back against anti-Muslim hate necessarily and involves a critique of imperialism, specifically like American and Canadian imperialism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do we even start raising that? I think, and Mona, I think you said it so beautifully. The challenge here, I think, Duncan, is that people are looking for a quick fix. Um, our politicians are looking for a low-hanging fruit, and I think that's where the pepper spray came about as well. Nobody wants to do the real work um, of fundamentally changing our systems so that we can uh, feel safe and thrive in our society, and that's the biggest challenge. I know, Mona, you can probably relate to this too, is I feel like every single solution that I've ever presented in front of politicians or even community roundtables has been dismissed because they it's been well you know I need something now because these attacks are happening now so tell me something that I can do right now so people stop attacking Muslim women on the streets and then I'm put in the position I'm like I don't have the answer for that because there is no answer for that and I've sat and I've thought about it but there isn't there is no short-term fix we all have to step up and do the work. And I see, especially in social media, you know, a lot of people just passing the buck off to politicians, you know, and, and I get it, like politicians and our leaders have the tools in all levels of government to implement change, but we all have to do the work as well. I see a lot of people who would, um, who would who say that they're allies to the Muslim community, um, and their allyship just stops at criticizing um, uh, politicians, but not carrying that work in their everyday lives and uprooting anti-Muslim hate and Islamophobia in the systems that they operate in. And I think that is the biggest challenge that it's all of us that have to do this work. I couldn't say it any more beautifully. Thank you, Heika. That's absolutely correct. Um, I think that, you know, enough with trying to figure out how we can do things immediately and as at low like as low cost and as low effort as possible and really get to do get to the work that needs to be done because i think everybody knows that it needs to be done it's just who's going to actually take the lead and be courageous enough to just start mhm and again this is why this conversation is uh <laughs> I mean, it's good. I've, I've learned a lot. You're both incredible guests, but it's like, okay, so all we got to do is just dismantle Canada and start from the ground up. And like, I'm here for it. I want to do it. But like, it's, it's <laughs> like, it's just, uh, this is, we're just talking on a podcast right now. You know, it's, it's not really, I mean, it's important. No big task at all. There's education. I mean, there's, there's, there's 
value to having this conversation, but like you, I want to move forward. I want to do the damn thing. And so, um, but I, I, I'm very grateful to have both of you on. I think this has been, um, a very good conversation. I'm again, very happy that both of you agreed to come on and, and talk about this issue. Um, I think that is going to be it for this. Uh, how can people follow along with uh, your work on the internet and keep in touch if that is a thing you want? Uh, we'll start with uh, Dr. Mana. <laughs> I'm so wary of putting my information out there. And I hate to say it's because of gendered Islamophobia and anti-Muslim hate. I've gotten a lot, but uh, so I'll just uh, say that maybe um, they can follow along by um, following me on Twitter at uh, Dr. Mona Saleh is my handle. Don't follow me if you're if you're racist. Um, um, but also, uh, hopefully, through future podcasts. Very similarly to Dr. Saleh, I actually recently changed my handle on Twitter because the amount of hate that I was getting for my pro-Palestine attacks and the surveillance I was getting. Um, so my Twitter account is actually at Ruafza, so it's R-O-O-H-A-F-Z, with like five A's at the end to make it really hard for people to find me. Uh, and Ruafza is a really sweet Pakistani drink, so that's why I decided to name it that. But you can follow me along on Twitter as I um, tweet random stuff all the time. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I think, don't, I think don't expect just hot takes you know what i mean like it's gonna be some some jokes some really weird memes but also some some critiques on the state i know that's so funny it's just it's it's a it's a mixed uh, bag which is important because we're not all any one of us all, all about any one thing so yes yeah well thank you so much for having me duncan it's always a pleasure and thank you to Dr. Mona Saleh for coming on with me. Uh, I learned so much from you and you're such an asset to our community, Dr. Saleh. Um, my social media is, uh, you can just search me on Twitter, Haika Chima, H-A-I-Q-A-C-H-E-E-M. And yeah, thank you so much. It's been a, It's been a pleasure. If you like this podcast and want to join the 500 some other folks who help keep this independent media project going, uh, it's a very easy thing to do. You can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, you know, put in your credit card, become a monthly uh, contributor. We'd really appreciate it. There's also a link in the show notes. Also, if you have any thoughts, notes, comments, things you think I need to hear, things you think I uh, screwed up on, I'm very easy to get a hold of as well. Uh, you can reach me by email at duncan k at progressalberta.ca or on Twitter at, at Duncan Kinney. Thanks so much to Cosmic Famu Communist for our amazing theme. Thanks again to our wonderful guests. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>